Please be seated. Today is Trinity Sunday, the only day on which we celebrate a doctrine rather than an event. The doctrine of the Trinity is mystery, it's mysterious, and it will still be so after this sermon. <laughs> but even so, I'll try to offer something useful in connection with it. One Sunday, many years ago, I was approached by a man who was a very regular churchgoer. Can I ask you a question, he said? Sure. Well, when we pray, we are talking to God, and then we say, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and you live and reign forever. Well, who are we praying to? To God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Who? This man had done what many people do. They have a notion about God, and then they try to fit Jesus and the Holy Spirit into that notion, sort of the same way Nicodemus did. Nicodemus was a leader among his people, and what he believed was the basic formula for proclaiming God and the nature of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Nicodemus had no other faithful way to conceive of God. When he went out that night to find Jesus, he could not have explained to his wife that he was going to talk with the second person of an undivided trinity or with the word made flesh. When he found Jesus, Nicodemus asked for an explanation. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. He was clearly convinced that Jesus was special, but he was confused, yet he was blessed with the ability to admit it. We can't fault Nicodemus for his confusion. Jesus' closest disciples shared in it. They began to understand that Jesus was in a unique relationship with God, but weren't quite sure how to think about it. They experienced God in Jesus' forgiveness of sins, in the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead. They were amazed at the power of their own ministries when Jesus sent them out two by two. They were bewildered and initially frightened by his resurrection and ascension. And at Pentecost, they experienced the presence and power of the Holy Spirit working in and through themselves to make the good news of God's work in Jesus known to others. They began to experience Jesus as far more than a representative of God. And when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter would come up with, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God but that's still a good distance from our doctrine of the Trinity. So after the Pentecost experience, the disciples had to begin not by asking how Jesus and the Holy Spirit could be added in to what they already believed about God. They had to let go of their preconceived notions about God altogether 
and ask a question which would take their own experiences into account, kind of like theological jeopardy, or Johnny Carson's character, the great Karnak, who was given the answer and had to come up with the right question. Could it be that Jesus is actually God? And if he is in fact God, then what kind of God could be, would become incarnate and why? Even getting to this question, we are still left with the inability to provide a definitive answer. Robert Capon, an Episcopal priest and author, once wrote that when we try to describe God, we are like a bunch of oysters trying to describe a ballerina. We simply aren't equipped to understand something so utterly beyond us. But that's never stopped us from trying. We moderns are not the first to search for language beyond the two men and a dove approach to describing the Trinity. Yeah. Among the attempts throughout the centuries, we have God is like fire, light, and heat, or word, breath, and speaker, water, ice, and steam, God is one like the clover plant and three like its constituent petals. God is composer, singer, song. God is one like the egg, yet three like the yolk, the white, and the shell. God is creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. St. Augustine used the language of God as the perfect union between the lover, the beloved, and the love itself. Yet all this being said, these are only simile and metaphor. All are incomplete, and only a few of them provide any hint as to the motivation for a triune God to enter human life, die, rise, ascend, and then re-enter human life as advocate and guide. But we are not without clues. In John's Gospel, Jesus uses a lot of glory and glorification language. Glory, in this usage, means the revelation of the inner truth about someone, the revealing of his or her inner nature. Jesus has glorified God, revealed God's true nature, in his teachings about the kingdom, in his healing of the sick, in his advocacy for the poor, in his forgiveness of sins, and in his assertion that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And before his arrest and death, Jesus asks Abba to glorify him, to reveal Jesus' own inner nature and truth to the disciples. When we hold these, I have glorified you, Abba, now you glorify me, passages, Alongside Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we may gain further insight. God, the fashioner of the universe and creator of all things, visible and invisible, loves the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Part of God's glory, then, part of God's very being, is the bestowal of life, life which flows from divine love and is intended to be characterized by everlasting love, 
anchored in belief in Jesus. Now, as much as I loathe some of Augustine's other teachings, I must admit that his language about the Trinity speaks very powerfully to me. One truth, an essential truth, about the God we worship as an eternal triune community of being is that God is love. Each member of this divine community is the lover, each is the beloved, and each is love itself. And when Jesus gave his disciples what he called a new commandment, it was this, love one another as I have loved you. This is love which is purposeful, effectual, which casts out fear and is joyful. It is love that is focused on the whole world. How we understand and speak about God is valueless unless we allow that understanding to inhabit our lives. The image of a clover leaf or of water, ice, and steam don't get us very far as guiding principles. And even the most elegant articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity is useless unless it issues in obedience to the commandment of Jesus to love as he loves. St. Anselm said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. When we are being our most faithful image of God's selves, we are revealing God's love to the world, sharing God's mission of reconciliation, and doing all in our power to let every person know that he or she is beloved by God. If we feel beloved, if we are filled with love for others, it becomes unthinkable to do violence or harm to them, to hold ourselves apart from them, and to remain indifferent to their suffering. The doctrine of the Trinity has become, for me, a reminder in my life of prayer to seek, to knock on the, to, to bang on the door, to beg, to beg, for the grace to love as God loves. Over the years, I've encouraged people to think about what would happen if everyone who claims to follow Jesus were to be incrementally more patient or tolerant or merciful or compassionate or just or generous or forgiving, just, just a tiny bit more of any two or three of those. Wouldn't the world be a vastly different place than it is? But today, I encourage you to think of what would happen if every follower of Jesus learned to love as God loves. All those other things would certainly fall into place, and we ourselves would be transformed. The doctrine of the Trinity is useful not because it helps us understand God intellectually, but because if we allow it to, it can help us and the world around us live in the joyful love that Jesus offers to all of us. May it be so. <laughs>